0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher, and for my colleague Julia Chatterley, I want to begin with a solemn farewell to one of the greatest sportsmen in history. Let's take a look here uh, at live pictures. Of course, I'm talking about Pele, who passed away uh, a few days ago. Uh, A 24-hour wake in his memory has begun in Brazil. Fans have been turning out at the stadium, at the Villa Belmiro Stadium. That's home of the Santos Football Club, where Pele forged that legendary career. Stefano Pozzobon is actually there. We've also got Khoiwai from CNN World Sport. So, Stefano, this is how a lot of Brazilians are starting their new year, paying tribute to one of the greatest, if not, in my humble opinion, the greatest uh, football stars to have ever lived.
2: Yeah, definitely, Zane. And by the way, here in this city, and actually in this country, I think 200 million Brazilians will definitely agree with your opinion. It's a somber moment to start the new year. It's also the new beginning for Brazil with a new president, uh, was inaugurated just uh, yesterday, and it also feels like a moment of a passing of the guard with uh, arguably the greatest Brazilian icon of the last uh, 60 years uh, uh, being laid to rest and seeing uh, his people, millions of people here in Santos, uh, walking respectfully, silently, one by one next to his casket to pay their respect. Uh, but uh, we talked about how Brazilian uh, Pelé was and how what, a, what an ambassador of Brazil. He was all around the world. He also was a minister in the 1990s. But going back to his Brazilianess, if you want, uh, I don't know if you can hear it, but there is uh, since the the moment that the gates of the stadium opened and a few first few guests arrive, uh, there has been a low samba playing in the background. Uh, it was a samba that was written in the 1960s and 70s when play was at the highest. There are rumors he actually wrote the lyrics himself because it's in first person of him and it's uh, called My Legacy, Meu Legado. And so it adds a little bit more of the somberness, a uh, slow Brazilian samba, low in the background, just very gently and respectfully accompanying the people as they come into the stadium one by one saying goodbye we've been here since 5am uh, in the morning and actually it's been a very somber well organized uh, uh, funeral you know it's uh, it's uh, it's striking that we are talking about this while in a stadium that of course was so happy and you know it's a, it's a cradle of so many memories uh, cheerful memories joyous memories uh, loud memories when it's all football and the career that uh, pelé had right now everything is silent there's only just this uh, low samba in the background uh, and people just trying to capture the moment uh, of saying goodbye to this icon of the 20th and 21st century for this nation and for the beautiful game. So,
1: Yes, so many people uh, there in Santos camping out, camping out for hours to pay their respects to the legend. Koi, let me bring you in because you can't really think about soccer, global soccer in the 1960s, 1970s without thinking about Pele. I mean, the way he played football was simply magical. Um, as somebody who's obviously, you know, uh, you know, you're in sports yourself, you you know, you cover this stuff, what are some of Pele's most magical goals and of course games?
3: Good barometer Zane is when you have worldwide recognition with just one name, Serena, Tiger, LeBron, right. Zane. Pele, you know you are something. And he is a master of his craft, right? Mind-boggling, a footwork, body control, these unthinkable goals that he would score. And he started it so young. It was 1958 uh, that he was playing, and he was the youngest man to ever play in a World Cup final at 17 years old. Not did he only just play; he scored two goals in the win over Sweden. Um, and he took his small club team, Santos, to another stratosphere. They had the power to stop wars that they tried Traveled to Nigeria in 1967, and uh, a ceasefire between warring fa- factions was brought for 48 hours because they were there to play. Uh, so it shows the power uh, that he possessed to impact the world around him. He retired in 1977 uh, with the New York Cosmos. He scored a, a record 1,281 goals in 1,363 games as a as a pro. Um, But to go on to win three World Cup titles, he's the only person to have ever done it. He might be the only person to ever do it. Um, It just speaks volumes about who he was as a player. And that was really just the start of his iconic life.
1: Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, his legacy, you could go on and on. He obviously transcended just soccer. So Stefano, what does Pelé mean to the likes of the most famous and revered soccer stars there in Brazil? People like Neymar. What does Pele mean to someone like Neymar?
2: I mean, there is a very famous quote that Neymar uh, gave a few years back when thinking of Pele, and he actually reposted it in his Instagram when the news of the passing of this icon uh, was made public. And uh, Neymar said that before Pele, um, number ten was just a number, and then uh, it, you know it now is Pele's number, the ten, the first great ten. In world football and also these we talked about it with Koi before this figure that Pelé had he, he's he's been a constant figure for the last uh, 60 years here in Brazil and here in, and around world football he was a mentor for many of these people Neymar is widely regarded as his hair because he also was brought up here in Santos in this very stadium by this very same club so that's why one of his nickname is Onei just as uh, Pelé is Oray the king so it's uh, it really feels like Pelé was the first one, and if you think of about a global football star, a global icon for the beautiful game, uh, well, Pelé was there in the 1970 when uh, you know mo- we know that most uh, South American players would go and play in Europe. Uh, you know, Real Madrid, Liverpool, AC Milan, Inter Milan are all the most famous clubs. Well, Pelé went to New York and went to united states because he realized that it was time to try open up the barriers of of football and bring the united states into the great family of uh, of world football so it it really is an icon and a person that has always been there mentored most of them that's why we are expecting some of the greatest football players of the last 20 30 40 years to come here are we here might be coming and of course i can think of dozens of uh, Brazilian football stars uh, who are expected here in the stadium as his body will be lying there for the next uh, 22 hours. So also in the middle of the night, people will be able to come in and pay their respects. Eh?
1: Yeah, in terms of the current, you know, Brazilian soccer, t- soccer stars, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Neymar, a lot of their careers would not be possible without Pelé. He showed them what was possible. Um, Stefano, I'm sure we'll check in with you and later. And Koi and Wai- then- one more, go ahead, one more go little. ahead,
2: stop, Arno. Go ahead. No, just one more little gem. Uh, we say that Pelé used to be a minister for sports in the nineteen mm-hmm. in the 1990s here in Brazil. So his legacy, the law that regulates professional football here in Brazil, he wrote that law, the Lei Pelé, it's the Pelé law. He wrote it as a minister to regulate uh, the contracts of young players uh, here in the Brazilian football system before, for example, they go up. To Europe. So in a way he was both uh, a trailblazer, the first global star, the first who has uh, like had uh, endorsements uh, worth uh, uh, thousands of, of dollars at the time and, and signing for a world club like New York Cosmos in the 1970s, but also he worked to preserve his legacy by actually writing the law that regulates professional football in this country.
1: His legacy has practical uh, implications, will have practical implications for years to come. All right, Stefano Potsdam, we have to leave it there. Koi Wai, thank you both so much. Seven days of mourning happening right now uh, in Santos, Brazil, to honor uh, one of the greatest football stars to have ever lived. All right, public viewing for the late Pope Emeritus Benedict. The 16th is now underway at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, where he will lie in state for three days. These are live pictures here. The Catholic faithful will be able to pay their respects in person from today through Wednesday. The funeral, which will be led by Pope Francis, will take place on Thursday. Joining me live now is Fred Blitken, uh, who is at the Vatican for us. So, Fred, this is the first time, obviously, Pope Benedict was the first pope to have resigned from his position in about 600 years. Just walk us through what we can expect today from the lying in state. Mm.
4: Well first of all the scenes that we're seeing here are pretty remarkable here at uh, at St. Peter's Square you're seeing a lot of people who are coming to pay their final respects and quite interesting because it's really a mixed bag of, of folks who are, who are showing up here. Obviously, this happened in the time you know that, that the years were changing, so many people would be on holidays, but you do see a lot of people now actually coming here and paying their respects. A lot of them obviously from here, from Italy, a lot of people from Rome, but also I'm seeing a lot of Germans coming here as well. The Pope, of course, was from Germany, from Bavaria, and he still holds a lot of clout, especially there in the southeast of Germany uh, in, in those places around Munich where he's a giant, towering... But of course, one of the things that we have to keep in mind as well, Zeng, is that he was also a massive figure here in the Vatican, not just in the time that he was the pope, but before that as well. Some people even say that he was more powerful when he was the head uh, of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith before he became pope than in his actual time of the papacy. So what we're going to see here in the next couple of days is obviously more people Pouring in here, paying their final respects, and then you have that funeral that's going to happen on Thursday, and it was the pi- uh, the wish of Pope Benedict the 16th that it be a fairly small and fairly humble affair if something like that is possible in an institution like the Catholic Church. It will still, of course, be a massive funeral. It will be led, as you mentioned, by Pope Francis himself, which is something that is really unprecedented for a sitting pope to be presiding over the funeral of his predecessor, but that is what's going to happen. We're already hearing that some heads of state are going to come here. But you know, I was here in in 2005 when John Paul II died, and it was just a gigantic event. There were millions of people uh, who came here, it's going to be a little bit smaller than that, but nevertheless, a big event. And I think also, especially within the Catholic Church, within the institution of the Catholic Church, for the doctrine of the Catholic Church, this is a major sea change that's about to happen in a major era that has now come to an end, All
5: Right,
1: Fred Blitgen, life for us there. Thank you. One third of the global economy is expected to be in recession this year. That's the warning from the head of the International Monetary Fund. Kristalina Georgieva says the world's three big economies, she's talking about the US, the European Union and China, are all slowing down at the same time. The IMF projects global growth of 2.7 percent this year, down from 3.2 percent in 2022. Let's break all of this down with our Paul Lamonica. So she's basically saying you've got the US, China, Europe uh, all slowing down simultaneously. And what was interesting, I found interesting in one of her comments, was that even the countries who are not Technically in recession, it's going to feel like a recession.
6: Yeah, definitely, Zane. Uh, she talked about how the US, for example, might avoid a recession. But that because of inflation being such a major issue in the United States, the Fed is going to probably keep interest rates higher for longer, which could potentially slow growth and also lead to further strength in the dollar. And those higher interest rates and a stronger dollar, that really will slam growth for developing emerging markets. So that is a big problem there. And then, of course, China, given everything that's going on with their latest COVID outbreak, the continued concerns about the Russia-Ukraine war, that obviously having a major impact on Europe's economy. So it is going to be difficult, I think, for the global economy to have a rebound year in 2023.
1: You you touch on China. Obviously, China is responsible for a significant portion of global growth. Of course, the zero COVID policy really hurt, was detrimental um, to the economy there. But the fact that they're reopening, you know, obviously, it's going to take some time for the economy to fully rebound. But the fact that they are reopening, is that somewhat of a silver lining here?
6: I think there are hopes that that will lead to a slight rebound in global growth, maybe at the end of this year, heading into 2024. And, uh, you know, uh, Xi just uh, recently said that uh, growth uh, for China was maybe about 4.4 percent in 2022, which was stronger than what a lot of people had expected. Of course, there's always a lot of skepticism, people taking, uh, you know, Chinese economic official data with various grains of salt, but it goes with Without question, aim that we need a healthy Chinese economy as well as a resilient American economy to help fuel global growth heading into the latter part of this year and into next year. But I think the beginning of 2023, there are more challenges than bright spots, unfortunately.
1: And speaking of 2023, I'm just so, I didn't even wish you a happy new year. Happy New Year, Paul. Uh, I hope you new had year. I hope you had a lovely weekend. Um all right, Paul, the Monica on that story, thank you so much. Okay, still to come here on First Move. Fresh COVID restrictions, how authorities around the world are taking precautions to stop the spread of infections. Plus, traveling to the North Pole on a luxury airship, a Swedish startup's ambitious plan. We'll take you through it next. Welcome back. A growing number of countries now imposing new restrictions on travelers arriving from China. Qatar is latest to announce fresh measures after the US, UK, Japan and others all said that they require a negative COVID test. COVID cases are surging in China after the government scrapped its zero COVID policy. Ivan Watson is live for us in Hong Kong. I think there's a lot of concern, Ivan, from many of these countries about the lack of transparency, the lack of information coming out of China when it comes to accurate COVID numbers, and also the concern that you know new variants uh, may spread.
7: Absolutely. And those have been uh, echoed by Uh, foreign governments, by the World Health Organization as well. Uh, Happy New Year, by the way. There's kind of a contradiction here. On the one hand, in China, you have people kind of celebrating... A return towards normality after all those onerous, draconian restrictions and lockdowns. People had a, a normal New Year's Eve uh, just a couple nights ago uh, and are able to move around. Uh, but the COVID is ripping through the population, uh, after, especially after the government made its quick U-turn on its zero COVID policy. So one friend in Shanghai, for instance, described going to the movies and just Everybody in the movie theater, she said, was coughing, and you see people coughing on the streets. Everybody seems to have gotten COVID and is recovering from it. Now, of course, this hits the most vulnerable people, the senior citizens, the hardest, and and the numbers are staggering uh, anecdotally. Look at these images from a Shanghai hospital, from the lobby, uh, and— multiply this uh, across the country, the big cities, where we're hearing about backups at funeral homes and crematoriums, and we still haven't seen a peak of the infections hitting uh, rural areas that have uh, weaker, uh, less developed uh, medical care systems. Uh, The concerns have been raised by the World Health Organization, which held meetings with senior Chinese officials on Friday. The WHA put out this statement saying that the the organization is again asking for regular sharing of specific and real-time data on the epidemiological situation. It's asking for more genetic sequencing data, more data on disease impact, uh, data on vaccinations, uh, especially in vulnerable people and those over 60 years old. So everybody seems to want more information. And in the absence of this, as China has announced that as of January 8th, they're not going to quarantine incoming travelers anymore. They're going to end their self-isolation. A growing number of governments are saying, hold on, we, we need to at least check passengers coming from China. That list includes the U.S., U.K., Italy, France, Japan, South Korea, Spain, Malaysia, and India, and Qatar, all saying that travelers will need to get COVID tests, prove they're negative before they get on planes to travel to those countries, and Morocco, which has had visa-free travel for Chinese citizens, it has just announced that it's going to prohibit any travelers from China whatsoever for the time being. And that goes to the concerns that people have about transparency, about the threat of new variants particularly possibly rising up in China as tens of millions of new infections take place there in the world's most populous country.
1: Yeah, and Sunny, some of the pictures we were showing while you were speaking... Uh, certainly not very reassuring. Ivan Watson, Life for us there. Thank you so much. All right, meanwhile, Chinese President Xi Jinping saying that the country's economy grew at least 4.4% last year, a number much stronger than many uh, economists had been predicting. In his New Year's speech or New Year's Eve speech, excuse me, he said, quote, China's economy is resilient and has good potential and vitality. Anna Ashton's the director of China Corporate Affairs. And- and US-China at Eurasia Group. Anna, thank you so much for being with us. So when you think about what the Chinese economy has gone through, years and years of zero COVID policy, uh, tough restrictions, I mean, now, yes, it is opening up. But as our reporter was just talking about there, the virus really does seem to be spreading. So what does 2023 hold for the Chinese economy, do you think?
5: Well, of course, there are some unknowns, but uh, any any opening up, is going to produce at least a moderate uptake in consumer spending um, based on just you know a move from from virtually no ability to get out there and spend money to being able to go to the corner store without having to pass, pass regular COVID tests um, so we do expect that 2023 will be a better year economically for China than 2022 but there are there are some unknowns um, and one of them is exactly how the COVID waves are going to play out in China. Some of the um, best explanations that that we've been hearing from public health officials and even from uh, public health officials within the Chinese government estimate that right now we're in a wave that's the first wave with the big cities. Uh, When people return home during the Lunar New Year, that will bring about a second wave in more rural parts of China. And then there will be another wave when people return for work. And so we're expecting that to play out by about mid-March, at which point we should really see the economy start to normalize. But that doesn't take into account the possibility that travelers from outside of China or Chinese travelers coming back to China will bring in new variants that create new outbreaks.
1: Right. I mean, and you talk about all all the unknowns. I mean, you know, one sort of important unknown that people just don't seem to be getting from China is really the number, the number of infections and the rate. How does that secrecy affect investment into the country?
5: Well, I think companies that are investing in China are pretty aware of the fact that the reason that there's not a clear number is because China has stopped uh, doing the kind of uh, mandatory tracking and testing that it was doing under the zero COVID policies. And those were pretty rigid and onerous compared to anything that other countries are doing. Um, So it's not that that there are not numbers, but just not the same sort of granularity that there was. Uh, We are starting to get estimates out of China, but it it is making lots of countries nervous that there's been this drop in transparency right at the same time that there's a lifting of, of zero COVID policies and the outbreak is clearly spreading across the country. And I think that lack of transparency Uh, issue really goes back to to the onset of the covid pandemic in what early 2020 when information was slow to come out of china in the first place so how do you think the the u.s
1: relationship with china is going to change you think about the fact that there's now a you know Republican-controlled House. I mean, obviously, last year, can't believe I'm saying last year, but a few months ago, uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan really rocked the boat. Um, Now that you've got a GOP House coming in, I mean, is your assumption that relationship is going to get even worse?
5: Well, there will certainly be pressure from the Republican-controlled House on the Biden administration and on colleagues in, in the Senate Uh, to be tougher on China. Uh, Both parties have a general agreement that, that China is the United States' most significant strategic risk so there is a lot of alignment, actually, between the two parties. But there's, there's no doubt that House Republicans are more hawkish in general about China than House Democrats. Uh, and we know for a fact that they're planning to step up some of their legislative efforts. And we do expect that there will be high profile visits, such as a speaker visit. Again, um, will the Chinese government attribute a speaker visit to the Biden administration in the same way that it did with Nancy Pelosi when it is a speaker from the opposite party? That's that's a a live question that may produce less of a significant reaction than the live fire military drills that we saw after Pelosi's visit in August. Um, On the other hand, it is uh, a second speaker visit following following one that hadn't happened in many years since Newt Gingrich, Uh, and that Newt Gingrich trip followed a trip to Beijing, so it was pretty different. Um, And definitely, I think there's, there's no doubt that China will take it as provocative.
1: And then, let's just quickly talk about the future of TikTok. I mean, this is the first Chinese app with global reach. I mean, truly global reach. Um, what happens to its security deal with the Biden administration? And I mean, a lot of U.S. lawmakers are really skeptical uh, about this app.
5: A lot of U.S. lawmakers are really skeptical about this app. And a lot of teenagers are probably paying attention to uh, U.S. government goings on in ways that they weren't before. I, I think yes. mine are. Um <laughs> So, uh, you know, the um, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States has been reviewing uh, TikTok's investment in the United States, and uh, there have been rumors of a potential solution that would mitigate national security concerns with basically U.S. company housing uh, U.S. persons' data that TikTok is using, no sending that data across borders, and some oversight of TikTok's algorithms. But uh, there. been criticisms of that solution from lawmakers in both parties, as well as FBI Director Ray, uh, who all say that it falls short of what is needed to truly protect user data. Um, Mike Gallagher, Republican from Wisconsin, who is going to be the head of the China Select Committee that the Republicans are setting up in the House, has advised that the best way for TikTok to to remain in operation in the United States is for it to be sold to a U.S. company, which was what the Trump administration. Uh, had proposed, so I think I think it's up in the air exactly how this will play out, but we may in fact see it come to uh, insistence on on TikTok being sold or or shutting down operations.
1: Well, we shall see. Anna Ashton uh, live for us there, director of China corporate affairs and U.S. China at the Eurasia Group. Anna, thank you so much. Happy New Year. All right, still to come here on First Move, a nation says goodbye. A 24 hour wake begins in Brazil for the legendary superstar Pele. More after the break. Right, returning now to our main story. In Brazil, mourners are pouring into a football stadium in Santos, that's just outside of Sao Paulo, to bid farewell to Pele. His casket will remain at the stadium for the next day, for the next 24 hours or so before uh, he'll end up having a private funeral. Fireworks went off as well. Um, well wishes lined the streets earlier today to see the hearse carrying Pelé's body from the hospital, which is where he passed away on Thursday. Julia Vargas joins us outside the stadium where the wake uh, is underway. So, Julia, you know, I understand, obviously, you've been speaking to a lot of people who have been lining up for hours uh, to say goodbye to Pelé. And, I assume that it's not just the older generation who actually watched him play um, back in you know, the 70s, etc., but it's also the younger generation as well. What have they said? What does Pelé mean to them?
8: Well, Zayn, they're telling me that he means so much more than a soccer player, really a legend. And someone in this town, in Santos, that raised this club out of relatively uh, obscurity, relative obscurity, and into the world stage. They're grateful. So it is a very solemn occasion, but it's also a very joyous one to celebrate uh, Pele's legacy. I want to just show you a little bit of this line. It's been snaking around all day. We got here so early. We saw the first people in line. People were Still arriving, and I want to show you two very dedicated fans that came here. Uh, this is Agenaide and Agenaide, their sister, 73 and 77 years old. They saw Pelé play when he was still playing for Santos and in the first World Cup he ever played. I just want to ask you, uh, why did you decide to come here today? Por que que você decidiu vir até aqui hoje para presidiar?
1: Pelo amor ao Pelé,
8: pelo ser humano, pelo desportista. E pela saudade imensa que ele está
5: fazendo
8: agora. Just for uh, the amazing person that he was, for the amazing sportsman that he, that he was, and for the gap that he is going to leave in her heart. Now, I want to ask your sister, Eneida, tell me, what did Pelé mean to you? O que, que o Pelé significou para você? Para mim, ele significou o ser humano capaz de ser grande, porque por amar o pequeno. So she's saying he was a great person, a great human being because he was able to love the small ones, those who didn't have much. And that's what Pelé really means for Brazil. He was an inspiration. He was the spirit of Brazilian excellence. He showed these people, my people, that we could be better, that we could achieve more and nothing more fitting than this kind of a send-off fit for a king, Zane.
1: Yeah, it's incredible, you know, especially when they talked about watching Pele play all those years ago when he was still playing uh, for Santos just just quick question how long is that line how long are actually people lining up for
8: oh boy it's it's blocks and blocks look this line over here if you take a look this is four different lines merging together uh, i would say this goes at least uh, 200 meters out to the end of the stadium and back three or four times, I can't tell you how many thousands of people are coming. You know, they can't stop inside the stadium. They keep on walking um, and they're only going to be able to view the coffin from about five meters away. And yet people still are coming. They want to pay their respects. They want to share and they want to participate in this moment in history.
1: And can I just say, God bless those two sisters for giving up their space in line to talk to us. Please thank them for me. That's really, really nice of them uh, to do that. I hope it doesn't Absolutely. make their line that much longer. Julia, thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, an apparent Ukrainian strike in the Russian occupied Donetsk region appears to have killed a large number of Russian troops stationed at a vocational, vocational school. That's according to both Ukrainian and pro-Russian accounts. The Ukrainian military claimed that around 400 Russian soldiers were killed and further 300 were wounded without directly acknowledging a role. CNN cannot verify uh, those numbers. It comes as Moscow targets civilians and critical infrastructure in a third straight day of attacks. Authorities in Kyiv are urging residents to reduce their electricity use amid emergency power cuts. Joining me live now from Kyiv is CNN's Ben Wiedemann. Uh, Ben, when you think about how the year ended, how 2022 ended for people in Ukraine, for people in Kyiv especially, just the constant aerial bombardments, the constant attacks, what do the next few months hold uh, for the Ukrainian people?
9: Well, the fear is it's going to be more of the same. Four out of the last five days, the Ukrainian capital has been hit by these strikes. The Russians are using mostly Shahed-135 Iranian drones that explode upon impact. And going back to the end of September, uh, the Russians have been targeting the energy infrastructure, uh, power plants and uh, and things like uh, thermal plants, the plants that provide hot water and heating, uh, for the residents of the capital and uh, all of the Ukraine, those at least who have those uh, facilities. And therefore, it does appear that the Russians, who are suffering defeats on a regular basis—and, you know, you mentioned that uh, strike on Makivka in the Donetsk region, where anywhere between 63 and 400 uh, Russians have been killed. And the russians they're, they're stumbling on the battlefield, but what they seem to be doing is making up for their failures on the battlefield with these unrelenting strikes targeted at the infrastructure. And the authorities here are fairly good at repairing as quickly as possible uh, what can be repaired, but uh, they can only do so much before the system actually starts to break down. Now, Friends of Ukraine have been providing emergency backup generators, but generators only go so far when it comes to fueling a city, or providing power to a city like uh, Kyiv, which is several million residents.
1: Zane? All right, Ben Wiedemann, life was there. Thank you so much. All right, still to come, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's an airship with plans to cruise to the North Pole. I speak with the CEO of Ocean Sky Cruises about recreating the flights of history that is after the book. Welcome back to First Move. Nearly 100 years ago, the Norwegian explorer Amundsen made The first flight over the North Pole in an airship now Ocean Sky Cruises from Sweden is planning to take passengers back to the Arctic in what they're describing as a sustainable and luxury experience. Ocean Sky's North Pole expedition is scheduled for 2024. The 100-metre-long hybrid airship will take off from Svalbard in Norway and travel for 15 hours before landing on the ice. Unlike early airships, like for example, the Hindenburg, which are filled with flammable hydrogen, modern vessels will use helium, a gas that will not catch fire. Reservations for the trip are now open, and early customers have the opportunity to become shareholders in the company. Fares, get this, starts at around $200,000 per cabin. Joining me live now is Carl oskar Labacek, He's the CEO and founder of Ocean Sky. Carl, thank you so much for being with us. Happy New Year.
10: Happy New Year. Thank you yeah. for letting so me listen, be here.
1: When people think about going on vacation, they think about going to the beach, you know, maybe the Caribbean or somewhere closer to home. They might go, I don't know, skiing or camping. But what you're trying to create is a situation whereby the journey itself is actually the destination. These are luxury very, very luxury. I hope we can show some some video to our audience. Um, airship cruises. Just explain to us what sort of experience. I mean, two hundred thousand dollars is certainly a pretty penny. What sort of experience can people expect on board?
10: A unique one. Uh, this is a flying yacht in the sky, and hasn't been done since, as you said in your in the beginning in your introduction, that for almost a hundred years it hasn't been possible to fly an airship in this luxury setting. So really what it is is a it's a unique experience.
1: When people think of I was actually talking about this with my producers right before the show. When people think of airships, as I'm sure you know, the Hindenburg disaster obviously comes to mind. I know that these airships that you're doing are very, very different because they use helium, not hydrogen. So that risk doesn't exist. The risk of it catching fire just just simply doesn't exist with helium. However, despite people knowing that intellectually, I think it's still hard to get over um, the association, right? People associate. I mean, Hindenburg literally marked the end of the airship era. How do you overcome that?
10: Well, uh, I think our target is a very... Special group of people, and uh, they're uh, they're first movers. They're a very small percentage of the population. Uh, it's lead thinkers. It's uh, adventurers, and uh, yeah. So I mean, um, obviously, actually, how we look at it, is a mass market product. In the future, we hope, we think, we envision. But in the beginning, it's 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 another target group. It's pioneers of the world, basically.
1: So just talk to you a bit. I mean, we, we did actually see a time I think we saw just now one picture actually inside in terms of what the cabin looks like. So if people are on this airship for several hours. What is the experience that they... OK, there we have it. What is the experience that... They can expect if you're in this airship for three four however many hours what are you doing how are you interacting with others what's the layout
10: well first of all you fly very low so in terms of the experience you can look out these amazing windows which will be very large windows like panoramic view because we don't have a pressurized cabin so we can build with uh, panorama windows that are that are big so the view is amazing Uh, We fly low so you can actually see what's on the ground or in the sea. Um, But really being on board that special trip with, you know, like-minded people that wants to push the boundaries and and, and really do something unique, I think it will create an atmosphere, you know, like when you're on the ship ship, for the first time across the ocean in, you know, fourteen hundreds and discovering America, you know, something like very, very uh, adventurous and uh, an expedition, an exploration of, of you know, land that is almost inaccessible. The North Pole and the Arctic is is inaccessible places.
1: Yeah. Um, so clearly, you're looking for uh, adventurers. People who push the boundary, but also people who have uh, $200,000 uh, to spare. Not many people like that out there. Uh, Carl would check, thank you so much uh, for being with us. We appreciate your time. All right, so to come after the break, still hungry after New Year's Eve, Julia Chatley spoke with chef and restaurateur Bobby Flay about his newest show and showed her a recipe would be perfect. Potato pancake. You can watch Julia cook uh, with Bobby Flay after the break. From shopping deliveries to the Super Bowl, the rise and rise of drone technology is something we've seen around the world in recent years. And one city is now using them to light up the sky throughout the festive season.
11: In recent years, Dubai has set a number of world records with its impressive firework displays. Now, the city is taking its festive spectacles to a whole new level, with a light show featuring over 500 drones.
12: We think of the sky as the biggest canvas that there is in order to tell stories.
11: Sky Magic is a drone technology company based in the UK and Singapore. For more than a decade, they've created 3D animated shows illuminating the skies in cities across the world. Today, they are in Dubai coordinating the longest-running drone show in the Middle East.
12: You see, kind of coming out of the world post-COVID, uh, the appetite for drone shows has risen exponentially.
11: Bringing this all to life is no easy feat, as it takes several months of preparations.
10: We start planning as early as July. We get on site about 10 days before the shows. We run tests in advance, so we start with flying one drone, going to five, going into 20. Finally, about three days before the first show, the entire fleet of 500-plus drones go up in the air.
11: Several steps go into designing the futuristic show, made possible with a team of creative minds and cutting-edge
12: technology. It's all bespoke, so our in-house software, which uses a 3D modelling tool, we move from still images, essentially, into an animation.
11: Despite dozens of people involved in the production, only a handful of crew members
12: actually control the show on the ground. We go through all of the flyable calculations, like safety parameters, then we essentially upload that animation file onto the drone fleet, and then the drone fleet will fly that animation in the sky in real life. According to
11: SkyMagic, the drones used in the show are much smaller than delivery drones and they're specifically made to glide swiftly through the air and change colors.
12: And they are very lightweight, very agile to move through the sky. Our newest bit, as well is a lot more wind resistant and rain resistant. The GPS accuracy on them is really strong, so makes it really precise when you're trying to make those tidy images.
11: Aside from entertainment, drones offer a greener alternative to traditional firework displays.
10: The key benefit is that it is sustainable. These drones can be used multiple times and I think going forward more and more cities across the world will be using drones instead of fireworks
11: this year it's estimated that over half a million spectators will gather in dubai to watch the drones light up the sky throughout the festive season
2: we're sitting down by the blue water and it just took us by surprise
11: i just got carried away with the music the lights the whole atmosphere everyone sort of went silent so i loved it For now, spectators are enjoying a -a one-of-a-kind experience. But these displays could soon become the norm as drone technology continues to evolve.
1: If you watched our CNN New Year's Eve special, you probably saw Julia Chatterley cooking up a storm with chef and TV personality Bobby Flay. Julia also spoke to Bobby about his new show on the Food Network uh, and filming with his daughter.
12: We have other reasons to celebrate too. Yeah. Your show, Bobby's Triple Threat, yeah. picked up for a second series. Talk to me about you. this.
13: I love this show. It's in a secret location in New York City and. There's three chefs that are, that are sort of my house chefs. We pick chefs from all over the country, one at a time, and they have to take on all three of the titans, as we like to call them. <laughs> and if they can beat them, they win twenty-five thousand dollars. And even more importantly than the money, the big time bragging rights. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and then if they actually if they if they win, we give them a locker in the club forever, so they can always keep their knives and stuff. They're always welcome back. Wow,
8: that's amazing. Yeah,
13: and there's also only one judge a night. Okay. And so you have to kind of play that as part of your strategy. You don't know who the judge is until after the first round. And then he or she comes out and then they start thinking about how they're going to be cooking the next round. So it's really, it's really a fun show.
12: Is it a lot of pressure because you have great experience of the sort of combination of presenting and doing this job, but also cooking at the same time, but in extremely tight time frames. Well, the, the
13: time frames are tight. I give them each two ingredients per round and usually they're ingredients that make sense together. For instance, like, this dish could have been made when I gave them potatoes and chives. I mean, they could have made a a version of this dish, you know. It's one of those things where I want the food to be first class, first rate. I want ingredients that make sense together because some people think to themselves, that's too easy. But in fact, there's 30 different ways they can go. The question is which path will they take?
1: And how long do they get to think about it?
13: Well, almost no time at all. I mean, it's basically, here are the ingredients, get up and let's start cooking.
1: Wow. Yeah. But viewers love
13: it? Viewers are loving it. It's probably some of the best cooking in food TV history.
12: What about with your daughter? One other thing, because she's a star herself, and I love On the Coast.
13: Yeah, oh, thank you so much. Sophie's a journalist out in um, Los Angeles. You know, Every once in a while, she gives me some of her free time and we do some things together. We did, you know, on the well, coast 19, 20, uh, with Bobby and Sophie for Food 19, Network. I just, it's fun to hang out with my daughter. That's for sure. Because
12: the way you described
8: her, you said she's savvy, but she helps keep you relevant. I, uh, think, she, I well, love exactly. that. I love exactly. that.
13: Exactly. It, um, it gets harder and harder every day, but but, <laughs> but 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 Sophie is definitely she's on the pulse. So she knows what's going on in the world. You know, she's 26 years old, so she's uh, you know she's as savvy as they come, and she keeps me in line in all the best ways to great shows great daughters and great food thank you so much thank
5: cheers.
1: you cheers oh what a, what, what a fun interview but what you didn't see there uh, was actually Julia's attempt to plate up a potato pancake now's your chance to see how it went take a look
13: do you want to try to make one yes
12: please okay okay <laughs> okay
13: okay so creme fraiche next
12: creme
5: fraiche
13: now you can go salmon salmon next sure Okay, now you're gonna to go to the pickled shallots? Yeah. Okay. Good. Master Chef here. I know, this okay. is
12: amazing. I missed then my calling. The caviar?
8: Okay.
13: Oh, yes. Oh, oh you dig deep. <laughs> I feel like I've met you before. Did indeed.
8: Oh, look. That just ruined it. Oh, oh, no. That's beautiful. Now it's
13: oozing. That's absolutely beautiful.
8: It's gonna be beautiful to eat. And,
13: and the then, then, and then the one a day. Yes, exactly. Kind of. Just drop it on there. And listen, they, Voila. Look, they literally look identical. It's beautiful. So she I gave it a try. Kirtama. Yes, please.
8: Can we swap though? Because i sure. Right.
13: Absolutely. Mm. Beautifully crunchy. Really
8: tender inside. Perfectly garnished. I always wonder whether on these shows people lie, even if they don't like it, they oh, just no. say it tastes... I don't want you to You're lie. If you don't li- like it, tell me. No, no, no. I'm talking about my food. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's very... It's you can lie to me. You did a perfect job. Thank you. You really did.
1: Ah, uh, Julia with uh, uh, that deep spoonful of caviar there. Very, very expensive taste. All right, that is it for the show. Connect the World is up next. You're watching CNN.